morning. I think often when I preach, um, normally I will preface the sermon by saying something like, I'm excited and grateful for the opportunity to preach and to look at a particular passage together, and that is true today as well. Uh, but I'm going to be honest and say something uh, and say that I'm feeling something else also. Uh, because some of the topics, uh, because of some of the topics that we're addressing, it might feel a little bit like we're walking through a minefield, okay? Uh, the text is inspired and authoritative and beautiful, but knowing how to apply the text wisely and carefully to uh, some of the particular situations that we face, that can be the difficult part. Uh, and because it's difficult, there is a potential for disagreement. There is an increased potential that I could evaluate some things in a way that are not quite accurate. I could say some things in a way that are not the most helpful. Uh, So if that's the case, um, if I do that, or if you feel that I do that, uh, I want you to know you have a wide open door uh, to go and talk to Brett. Uh, or Ben or Trey, and I'm going to get out of town. No. Uh, we want you to know that we want you all to feel free uh, to talk to any of us about, at uh, any time about uh, the content of this sermon or anything else that may be on your heart. Really, these potential difficulties should be um, a reminder to us uh, that should drive us to greater dependence on the Lord in prayer. And so uh, let's go to him right now. Let's ask his protection and his blessing uh, for our time together in his word. Would you pray with me? Lord, we need your grace to make us humble and receptive to your word. We need your wisdom to protect us from error. We need your love to bind us together in true unity. And we ask that you would give us all this and all that we need as we call out to you in Jesus' name and by the power of his Spirit. May the words of our mouth And the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray to you. Amen. So if you have not done so already, I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3. The particular verses that we're looking at this morning are just a handful, verses 11 through 13, but I do want to read the larger passage to give us a good feel for the context, so I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and we'll go through actually through verse 17, then come back and look at verses 11 through 13 more closely. So writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says this, if, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above 
where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's go back to verse 11 and 12 and 13 for just a minute. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all. And in all, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So we all know There are a lot of issues over which Christians sometimes disagree, right? Sometimes we discuss and debate those issues. Sometimes emotions can run high. Uh, But there's one thing I hope we can all fully agree on, and that is how to eat cornbread, right? I think this may be worth a few amens. Uh, First of all, of course, it needs to be hot, Uh, with the steam still rising, preferably fresh out of the oven. 
Uh, but if you have to put it in the microwave, do whatever you have to do to get it hot enough so the butter will melt completely into the cornbread, right? Uh, but the important thing is the honey. And here's what you need to know. You don't spread the honey. You pour the honey. You don't hold back. You let the honey run over the edges. If there's too much honey to soak up with the cornbread, that's fine because there's your reason just to get another piece, right? Okay, you may have suspected I'm not really talking about cornbread. What I'm actually talking about is personal relationships within the body of Christ, which is what Paul is talking about here in the middle of Colossians 3. Here's one way that we can say it. These verses show us what it looks like to pour the gospel practically and relevantly and richly into our relationships. And oh my goodness, isn't that relevant for us today? We are living in a time of serious division and unrest in our nation and our culture. Evangelical Christians are not in full agreement how we should approach the issues that are being raised. And instead of being transformed by the renewing of our minds according to the mercies of God revealed in the gospel, we are often conformed to the thought patterns and behaviors of the unbelieving world around us. We are trained on a daily basis by peer pressure, by social media, by movies and sitcoms. All these forces influence us in ways we may not fully recognize. They teach us what's cool and what's funny. They teach us how to react to people and situations with a snarky, cynical spirit. They teach us how to get what we want by grasping for power or giving in to outbursts of anger. All these things run contrary to the relationship model that King Jesus gives to his followers. One of the places we find this model described is Colossians 3. In verses 12 and 13, and we could go further if we had the time, we get this beautiful picture of what it should look like when God's people are living together in unity based on the new identity that they have received through the work of Christ. So notice, first of all, the connection between verse 11 and verse 12. There's an important connecting word, then, or therefore, uh, that shows us the commands or instructions beginning in verse 12 are based on the realities that he has just described in the previous verses, especially verse 11. In the new life given to us in Christ, old earthly distinctions... The religious, social, cultural, economic classes that divided the world in Paul's day. That's what he's talking about when he says Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, and so forth. He says those kinds of things have ceased to matter. Not that they no longer existed. Not that they couldn't sort of push themselves into your daily life in what we might call secular society. But in God's new covenant community, the way that Jewish and Gentile believers related to one another, the way a wealthy landowner would have close fellowship with a servant with far less social status, or the way a Greek-speaking Roman citizen, if he was a Christ follower, would respect a poor immigrant who spoke Scythian or some other language, in all these examples, their relationship with one another was based on their commonality in Christ, not their social or cultural or economic differences. That's what Paul is saying in verse 11. Christ is all and in all. 
When you look at your fellow believer, what matters is not whether he shares your skin color or your social economic status or your cultural background. What matters is he is in Christ and Christ is in him. And if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, then you are not only united with Christ, you are united with one another. And the unity in Christ that belongs to believers of different ethnicities, of different backgrounds, and dare I say different political persuasions should be a model and a source of hope for those in our society who are caught in a cycle of conflict and division. But from what I can tell, it is still very much an open question whether they are going to be influenced by us or we are going to be influenced by them. The elders of Redeemer Church have uh, discussed these things quite a lot recently, and in those discussions we have admitted to one another that we don't think we have been vocal enough or proactive enough in addressing some of these topics. It's not that we need to address every hot-button cultural issue that is circulating on social media. But this particular issue of authentic Christian unity and racial reconciliation is absolutely tied to what we believe about the gospel. When sinners are reconciled to God through the death of Christ, they must also become reconciled to one another. And Paul is making that connection and showing us what that looks like as he moves from verse 11 to verse 12. So I think we would all agree with what he has said about our unity in Christ in verse 11. But in verse 12, he takes us from doctrine to practice. How are we supposed to respond to God's saving, liberating, uniting work for sinners in Christ? How do we live out our identity as God's chosen, holy, beloved ones? Those who have been set apart from the rest of the world as objects of God's mighty, eternal, saving love. Well, in this new family, there's a new set of clothes that we're supposed to put on. In contrast to the old clothes, the old way of life we once practiced. The new clothing, the new way of life is characterized by things like compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. Whenever there is a complaint or an offense or a grievance that arises within this unique community, we deal with it in forgiveness as the Lord has forgiven us. So one thing we can notice here in this description is that the new life does not mean an absence of hurt or an absence of conflict. We are still sinners. We are going to mess up. And by our sin, we are going to hurt one another. And we're going to bring pain into our relationships from time to time. But God is telling us here through the Apostle Paul how to build up those relationships and how to deal with those times of hurt and pain when they do come up. Until we do that, we could say the honey is still in the jar, right? We haven't yet poured the sweet taste of the gospel over our daily relationships. We haven't put gospel theory into actual practice. So these verses will help us do that. When we look at this list of qualities that Paul tells us to put on, I think we can see that they fit into three categories. One would be how to respond to those in hurt or in need. Two would be how to respond to those with whom we have a disagreement. And three would be how to respond to those 
who have hurt us or offended us in some way. And the truth is, these kinds of issues are likely to come up in the context we have just mentioned in verse 11. When believers come together from different backgrounds, different nationalities, different ways of looking at things, the potential for misunderstanding and for disagreement and conflict and offense can be very high. And even though it may be uncomfortable, we believe God is calling us to address these things directly in the Christ-like, cross-shaped way that we see here. So the first category has to do with how we respond to hurts and needs in the lives of our brothers and sisters. These are the first two qualities in Paul's list. Compassionate hearts and kindness. Compassionate hearts and kindness tell us how to respond to our brothers' hurts or needs. Uh, Compassionate hearts is really the more modern way of translating what the King James Version calls bowels of mercies. Uh, Literally, it is talking about our internal organs. It means strong sympathy that you feel in your guts. Uh, So one commentator puts it maybe a little more delicately. He says it's an understanding sympathy with others that affects one's innermost being. It's related to what Paul says in Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. One important test of your spiritual maturity and your likeness to Christ is how much you are able to enter into the emotional experience of others. Pouring the gospel into our relationships means taking the time to hear and understand and empathize with the pain and needs experienced by your brothers and sisters. And so trying to apply this, I'm going to get a little more specific Uh, Right now, our African-American brothers and sisters are going through a time of great hurt. I think we need to see this and recognize this. And that hurt is not only experienced outside the church, it is often felt deeply inside the church as well. There are painful personal issues that continue to foster a sense of separation rather than a spirit of unity. And I think it will help us understand this better if we listen to the voice of a Christian brother named Shai Lin. Some of you are familiar with his music. He's a black hip-hop artist who wrote a letter that was posted on the Gospel Coalition website a few weeks ago. And I would just like to read part of that letter. Um, He tells us how in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing, he and his wife received a letter, an, an email from a sister in Christ asking how was, how was he doing? And he expresses some hesitation in giving her his answer. He's, he realizes he doesn't speak for all black people on that issue. He realizes the potential for misunderstanding. He realizes in today's climate how you open yourself up on social media. You can, you can be, uh, open yourself up to people hating on, hating on you or misunderstanding you. But he says he's willing to take the risk and, and, and for the sake of unity. And he, he tells her this. Sister... I'm going to tell you how I'm doing, and as I tell you, please understand that I'm incapable of completing this message without weeping. There's a part of me that's saying, spare yourself the pain, shy. It's not worth it. But I'm choosing not to listen to that part of me because I would be robbing you of an opportunity to bear one another's burdens and mourn with those who mourn, and I'm sure as a sister in Christ, you want to do just that. 
Sister, I am heartbroken and devastated. I feel gutted. I haven't been able to focus on much at all since I saw the horrific video of George Floyd's murder. The image of that officer with hand in pocket as he calmly and callously squeezed the life out of that man while he begged for his life is an image that will haunt me until the day that I die. There's more from this letter that I want to read in a few minutes here, but for now, can you just hear the pain and feel the turmoil in this brother's heart? Instead of isolating yourself, instead of cushioning yourself from the raw, risky, messy business of racial dialogue, can you weep with those who weep? We're called to put on compassionate hearts. But we're also called to put on kindness. In other words, our responsibility to those in need does not end with an emotional response of sympathy. It must move on to include tangible deeds or actions that are useful and beneficial to those in need. So this can include a whole variety of different sorts of needs. Maybe it's starting a college fund for families in your church with less resources than you. Maybe it's giving your time to help a fourth grader uh, with his reading skills or his multiplication tables. Maybe it's doing laundry or cleaning house for a single mother or helping to create an opportunity for a struggling teenager to find a job. We could probably think of tons of examples like this if we make kindness a priority, if we see the kindness that God has displayed to us and then seek to extend it to others. That's part of what it looks like to pour the gospel into our daily relationships. Now there's a second category we need to look at. And this may get more difficult because this involves how to respond to those with whom you disagree. You may find yourself in disagreement with the next, this next section of Shailen's letter. And you may even disagree with me for, for reading it or reading parts of it. Uh, but I think it gives us an opportunity to explore how we apply the gospel in this difficult area. And so here's some more from Shailen. I I really can't take the time to read everything, so I'm going to have to summarize. Referring to to the killing of George Floyd, he says, it's not just the video of this one incident. For many black people, it's never about just one incident. And then he gives lots of names of uh, highly publicized killings of black people in recent years. Uh, He says... This is about how being a black man in America has shaped both the way I see myself and the way others have seen me my whole life. And he gives all these examples about being told to leave the sneaker store when he was 12 years old because he was taking too long to decide which pair of sneakers he wanted and the sales lady was suspicious of him. Talks about being handcuffed, thrown into the back of a police car while he was just walking down the street in college. Talks about walking down the street and and frequently noticing that white people would cross over to the other side of the street especially women, and, that would, and it made him get in the habit of crossing the street before they did just to save everyone the humiliation that was involved. He talks about taking a road trip with his family in Michigan, predominantly white Michigan, where he was, and terrified that the same thing would happen to him that happened to one of his friends. He's pulled over for no, for no reason other than driving while black and, and handcuffed and humiliated in front of his family. He talks about feeling constantly exhausted when he has these encounters 
uh, with meeting maybe a, a, a white uh, Christian for the first time, and he has to, uh, uh, to assure them, hey, I'm not, I'm not a threat. You don't have to be afraid of me. Um, he talks about asking his wife to take over for him in certain customer service situations because he is really, really sure that she's going to get treated better than he will since she's white. Um, I can't even give all the examples that he, that he mentions, intentionally keeping the car seats in his car, so uh, he hopes that even if, he's, even if the, the kids aren't with him, so that people will recognize him as a family man, the, the police will say, well, he probably just wants to get home just like I do. Um, I'll, I'll finish up here with this portion of his letter. He says, it's, it's having what feels like genuine fellowship with my white brothers and sisters who share the same Reformed theology. Until I mention racism, injustice, or police brutality, at which point I'm looked at skeptically as if I embrace a social gospel or in some kind of liberal or social justice warrior. He talks about feeling like some of his white friends aren't really that interested in getting to know him and his views. They're just kind of interested in having a black friend so they can check off the black friend box. And he concludes this section saying, when I watch a video like George Floyd's, it represents for me the fresh reopening of a deep wound and the reliving of layers of trauma that get exponentially compounded each time a well-meaning white friend says, all lives matter. Of course they do. But in this country, black lives have been treated like they don't matter for centuries, and present inequities in criminal justice, income, housing, health care, education, etc., show that all lives don't actually matter like they should. Now, because we are such a conservative church, not just theologically, but socially and politically, I think it's very possible some of you would say, wait a minute, he's helping to reinforce a false narrative. He's promoting the idea that America is still overrun with racism. And here's where things start to get pretty uncomfortable, right? There is a significant disagreement over how big of a problem racism still is today, which may depend on other questions like, what is racism? What do we mean by that? And it gets pretty complicated pretty fast, and it's hard for both sides to listen to the other. Some of you say racial inequality and discrimination is largely a thing of the past. And some say, are you kidding me? Stop sticking your head in the sand. So what are we supposed to do about that? Well, part of the answer is found here towards the end of verse 12. Paul says, put on humility and meekness. Put on humility and meekness. So let's talk about what that means. The word for humility is, first of all, it's literally a lowliness of mind. It will keep you from being too quick to assume you're right and the other person is wrong. It will guard you from having an inflated view of your own gifts and your own positions and your own calling where you always feel it's your responsibility to instruct and correct others and it helps you remember you may be able to benefit from others instructing and correcting you. And when you are really convinced that you're right about some particular issue and you need to point out where your brother is wrong, you need to keep in mind the second word in this pair, which is meekness. 
The word can be translated as gentleness. It's the opposite of being pushy or overbearing. It leads us to soften our language so we don't have to use our words as a sledgehammer. It doesn't mean we sacrifice the truth for the sake of an artificial peace, but it moves us to look for ways to express the truth constructively instead of just trying to discredit and defeat your opponents. So let me ask. (laughs) In today's uh, polarized political climate, how much humility and meekness do you see? Or more to the point, when you get on Facebook or Twitter, how much humility and meekness do you demonstrate to others? How often do you prefer to point to the radical excesses of the other side? Maybe your target is Antifa or Black Lives Matter. And then you use that as a justification to dismiss what may be some legitimate concerns. Oh, they're just a bunch of thugs. They're just a bunch of Marxists. Let me give another example. Generally speaking, I would say the members of this church are uh, pretty big on the Second Amendment. And just for the record, I support the Second Amendment. I don't particularly want to live in a society where only the bad guys have guns. But there is an attitude that has crept into the church on this particular issue that says, acts and says something like this. Yeah, buddy. You just try to come mess with me and see what you get. I would suggest that kind of swagger is not compatible with the humility and meekness that we're called to practice as followers of Christ. The elders of Redeemer believe that the growing division within evangelicalism calls for at least two things. One would be a strong, sympathetic understanding for the concerns raised by both sides. And two would be sober, realistic warnings against the dangers that are present for both sides. So here's what I mean. One side may start with a focus on racial justice and the long history of injustice that has taken place in this country. From there, it may become difficult to enjoy close fellowship with anyone who is not sufficiently outraged by these realities. In your affinity with those who cry out for justice, you may gloss over the theological liberalism of a hero like Martin Luther King and begin to think of salvation and the gospel in primarily political and material terms. You can deny the possibility of minorities participating in the sin of racism. You can dismiss legitimate concerns raised by conservatives because, after all, they're just defending their whiteness. You can give in to a lust for revenge and call it justice. If you find yourself leaning in some of those directions, you need Colossians 3 and the rest of the New Testament to remind you what biblical Christianity is all about. It's about seeking the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. It's about being seated with him in heavenly realms, even while you carry a cross here on earth. It's about loving your enemies and forgiving others as you have been forgiven. It's not by any means necessary. Well, the other side starts with a much rosier view 
of America's past. So a high regard for the founding fathers and the early pioneers may lead to a strong sense of nationalistic pride. You begin to glorify the achievements of the past and minimize its sins and failures. Soon it becomes difficult to enjoy close fellowship with anyone who does not share your positive view of America. Your crusade against critical theory and cultural Marxism begins to take precedence over basic priorities of the Christian life. Your cultural heroes reflect the don't tread on me mentality that makes you proud to be an American and you end up equating traditional American culture with biblical Christianity. King Jesus does not allow his subjects to replace his commands with the values of their earthly kingdoms. He tells us that real Christianity is following him to the cross. It's being united with him in his death and resurrection. It's receiving his Holy Spirit who produces things like love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control in our lives. It's visiting orphans and widows in their affliction and keeping oneself unstained from the world. It's not, go ahead, make my day. The real issue here is not the relative righteousness or unrighteousness of the founding fathers. And it's not whether you gravitate left or right on the political spectrum. The question is, who commands your loyalty? For the Christian, that cannot be your nationality, your ethnicity, or your culture. In the gospel, God calls you to relate to others with the same kind of grace that you have received in Christ. For many of us, that means laying aside the angry, accusing spirit that seems to dominate so much of our political discourse. For some of us, it means we need to lay aside the defensiveness we might feel when someone implies we're not as racially neutral as we thought. So what does that look like? I want to try to explore this with an example that I know is highly controversial. So I'm going to try to speak very carefully, and I want to ask you to hear me just as carefully. I know that Black Lives Matter, as an organization, embraces and promotes some ideas that are clearly ungodly. You can see those on their website. If you use that phrase, Black Lives Matter, in certain contexts, you run the risk of associating yourself, at least in some people's minds, with those unbiblical ideas. So I am not talking about whether you choose to carry a sign or wear the t-shirt. What I am talking about is how you respond to those who do, including your fellow believers in Christ. Why is the phrase itself, Black Lives Matter, why is that phrase itself so controversial? Well, it's because it carries an implicit suggestion that we as a society, to a significant degree, have not valued the lives of blacks the way we should. So the question is, are you offended by that suggestion? And if so, are you justified in taking offense? The humility and meekness that Paul is exhorting us to put on in this passage That is only possible within a certain worldview. That is a worldview that takes seriously the depravity of human nature. 
The doctrine of depravity teaches us that in our natural condition, we do not love others as we should. And furthermore, we are especially likely to look down on others whom we perceive as different and not part of our group. We know the words of the prophet Jeremiah, right? The heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? Are we really so confident that we are free from this particular sin? Are we sure that our indignation is a righteous indignation or is it a manifestation of our self-righteousness? I realize not every case of perceived injustice is necessarily unjust. Not every case of injustice is racially based. Is there a danger in viewing everything in terms of racial oppression? Yes, there is a danger there. But in order to address those issues adequately, constructively, we first have to examine our own hearts. And in that process, that's how we learn to put on the humility and meekness we're called to display as followers of Christ. Now, with a proper awareness of our own potential for sin and self-deception, with a clear sense of our need for forgiveness and growth, we can move into this third category that Paul addresses, and that is how we respond to hurts or offenses that we receive from others. So I mentioned this earlier, there are going to be times when we mess up and bring some level of hurt into our relationships. We might say something that is harsh or hasty or just dumb. It may be the result of an innocent mistake, or it may reveal some immaturity or some deeply rooted pattern of sin in our lives. So what do you need when you commit those kinds of offenses? Well, you need people to be patient with your mistakes You need them to bear with you in your immaturity, and you need them to forgive you when you do something wrong. But more to the point that Paul is making here, how do you respond when others say something foolish or hurtful to you? What do you do when they commit sin against you? Well, you need to be patient and bear with them and forgive them. The word patience literally means long-suffering. It carries the idea of repeatedly enduring hurt caused by others without responding in kind. Bearing with one another is very similar to that. It means holding up or bearing up under provocation. But probably the key word uh, in verse 13, because it's repeated three times, is the word forgive, forgive. The word used here literally means a gift, It's something bestowed, not because it's earned, but as an act of grace. And the pattern for this, of which he explicitly reminds us, is this is the way the Lord has forgiven you. This is the pattern we see all over the New Testament, right? This is what we mean when we talk about applying the gospel to our daily lives and relationships. We reflect on the truth that God has forgiven us, not hesitantly, not reluctantly, not grudgingly, but lavishly, freely, generously. And it's in that reality that we are empowered to extend that same kind of forgiveness to those who have wronged us. Now, this is true not only in times of social or political controversy, which I've talked about a fair amount. This would be true in your closest personal relationships, such as your marriage. Some of you are dealing with hurts in your marriage that go back for years. 
The gospel teaches you not to hold on to those hurts, but to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. If you struggle with that, if you have a difficult time forgiving others, it may be because you have not grasped the enormity of what God has done to forgive you. I have one other example I want to go to of uh, someone who is probably more qualified than any, any of us here to talk about forgiveness. And uh, that is Corey Ten Boom. I think a lot of you know her story. Uh, towards the end of her book, The Hiding Place, she talks about being approached at a church service, at the end of a church service where she was speaking. She, she's, a, she's approached by the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. So her former guard who had committed such atrocities. He comes to her and says, How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. So he is professing his faith in Christ. He reaches out to shake her hand and she says she finds herself unable to reach out and do the same. And then she says this, even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. She talks about this incredible feeling that came over her as she reached out her hand to him. She says, into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And then she says, so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. So that really is the perspective that makes all the difference, doesn't it? That's the reality that allows you to say... This hurt that I have received is part of the picture, but it's not the whole picture. I can have hope when others fail me or wound me because I have received hope from Christ when I failed and wounded Him. It is only the gospel of Christ that gives us more than a band-aid solution for failed, broken, messy relationships. If God can close the distance between His infinite holiness and your shameful guilt, He can certainly close the distance between two sinners. Those sinners may be a husband and a wife in a difficult marriage. They may be a black activist and a Klansman. They may be a Dutch prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp and her SS guard. I think these real-life examples show us that this is real. It's not just theory. Paul is not being naive here. 
He knew firsthand the bitterness that boiled between Jews and Gentiles in his own cultural context. In his life before Christ, he prized his Jewish purity so zealously, he was willing to persecute and kill those who threatened his worldview. But he came to learn the reconciling power of the gospel. It's why he was able to say, in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But he didn't just say it. He lived it. In these verses, guided by the Holy Spirit, he calls us to live it out as well. And may God give us the grace to do that. Brett, would you come lead us in prayer? This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.